Mr. Wickham was so perfectly satisfied with this conversation that he never again distressed himself or provoked his dear sister Elizabeth by introducing the subject of it, and she was pleased to find that she had said enough to keep him quiet. I'm Harriet. And I'm Ellen. And this is Reading Jane Austen. The Australian government has slightly relaxed the coronavirus isolation rules, so we're back to recording this in the same room, which makes everything a bit easier. We're going to be looking at chapters 53 to 57 of Pride and Prejudice. Do you have a one-sentence summary? All right. Merriton and Mrs Bennet delight in the news that Bingley is returning to the house he has legally hired, though Kitty is surprised he is accompanied by that tall, proud man. But when Darcy leaves, Bingley proposes to Jane, and while Elizabeth is struggling to convince herself that Darcy will renew his addresses, Mr Collins hears that he is likely to do so, which makes Lady Catherine come to Longbourn to insist that Elizabeth not pollute the shades of Pemberley, while Mr Collins writes to Mr Bennet, which amuses him, though Elizabeth wonders whether he has seen too little or she has fancied too much. That comes out at two ands and five Austenisms. Okay, which is a total of plus three. My sentence is, The Wickhams leave for the north just before Bingley returns for shooting, briefly accompanied by Darcy. And even though Mr Bennet refuses the fool's errand of calling on him, within days he's asked Jane to marry him, making the Bennets the luckiest family in the world. And although Elizabeth has been astonished and vexed by Darcy's behaviour and determined to think no more about him, first Lady Catherine arrives to demand that she contradict the alarming report she's about to marry Darcy. Then Mr Bennet shares with her the joke of a letter received from Mr Collins containing the same rumour, but Elizabeth struggles to laugh when she would rather have cried. That has three ands in it, but it's also got six Austenisms, so it's, it comes out at plus three as well. Oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> One of the things that, that interested me was how Jane Austen manages to keep this suspense really going, really well, and grabbing our attention all the way through this. After all, as she says in Northanger Abbey, you can tell by the compression of the pages <laughs> that it's not going to be long. And yet you want to know what's going to happen. You could also say you want to see how she works it out. Mm. But it really holds one's attention. I think one of the ways it holds your attention is Elizabeth is continually flipping between hope and despair over Darcy. First of all, when he's at dinner, he's not seated by her, so they can't talk, but she's surprised that he's completely silent, whereas when they were in Kent and at Pemberley, he talked to her friends, even if he wasn't talking to herself. And then she thinks that he's a man who has once been refused. How could I ever be foolish enough to expect a renewal of his love? And then when she's wondering why Lady Catherine has heard this rumour that they're going to get married. She thinks that it's just because the Bingley-Jane relationship makes people expect more and says that she had not herself forgotten to feel that the marriage of her sister must bring them more frequently together. But then after Mr Bennett shares the letter, she wonders if she's been hoping too much. So she's just continually flipping between maybe he still loves me, maybe he doesn't. Maybe he did, but then Lady Catherine will convince him that he doesn't because there's that, that bit where she talks about not knowing the exact degree of affection for his aunt or his dependence on her judgment, but it was natural to suppose that he thought much higher of her ladyship than she could do, and it was certain that in enumerating the miseries of a marriage with one whose immediate connections were so unequal to his own, his aunt would address him on his weakest side. With his notions of dignity, he would probably feel that the arguments, which to Elizabeth had appeared weak and ridiculous, contained much good sense and solid reasoning. And that's another thing she keeps flipping between. She recognises this, this weakness in him as placing too much value, in her view, on rank and position. But then she says when it came to Lydia, she was proud of him because he'd been able to rise above himself. But here she's concerned that he still has this weakness and Lady Catherine will draw on it. So she just, she doesn't know what to think. Yes. I mean, you very much get that to and fro balance where she's got this continual argument going on in her mind about what he's thinking. Mm. There's another thing that I just felt like commenting on and that's you know, that detailed account she gives of what Elizabeth goes through at the dinner party. Mm. 
when the girl says the men mustn't separate us, she hopes he'll come up and he takes a bit too long to turn up and by the time he's there asking for his coffee, somebody else has started. And it's just, you know... It, all, it's, all these unlucky and unfortunate impediments... Yes. ...that are keeping them from talking to each other. Yes, which must have happened to her quite often when she was really young. But that tends to be the sort of incident that turns up at the beginning of a book when the heroine is just beginning to fall in love. And but I think with Jane Austen it doesn't because when you think about it, you have that precise situation at the end of Persuasion where Anne thinks, well, we're both grown-up people. Surely we're going to be able to connect with each other but things keep on causing misunderstandings. That's yes. in the end of Persuasion. And then, of course, at the end of Sense and Sensibility... You have the situation where, well, I suppose this is more misunderstanding, where she thinks that he's married to Lucy Steele when in fact she isn't. Yeah. So you actually get that a bit in the others as well, but particularly persuasion, that exact parallel of she thinks that they should be able to talk, but things keep coming up and stopping them. Yes, I suppose it's that, but it's, I suppose for me it's also, uh, it seems such... A young girl's suffering, that's all. Mm. By the time you get to Anne Elliot, you know, she's a mature woman. But that just seems to me someone remembering the things that used to sort of make you so cross when you were very young. <laughs> mm. The second point I wanted to talk a little bit about was this whole question of the background of shooting mm. and how shooting as a sport you know, really matters to them. That's why, after all, right at the beginning, that's the reason why Bingley rented Netherfield. Oh, he wanted an estate close to London where he could nip down for the shooting and nip back again. Mm. And that's why they're there. And so the fact that they've been away for all that time doesn't necessarily mean very much. And it certainly is a good excuse for him and Darcy to turn up again when they did. But even so, it all fits in a bit with the whole question of shooting because the first day for shooting Partridges was the 1st of September, which is just after Wickham and Lydia have turned up. Mm. And so they don't come there while Wickham and Lydia are there, but dating using Ellen Moody's timeline is the Wickham's leave on September the 9th. And then a week later, the news reaches Meryton that Bingley is coming back, so it mm. all fits very neatly. I wonder if Darcy actually kept an eye on when Wickham and Lydia were going north and made sure that he and Bingley didn't come back until after they'd left. Oh, I'm sure he did, <laughs> yes. I mean, that's how it fits in, mm. but it fits very neatly. Mm. Then there's another little piece of sort of shooting behaviour because just after Bingley has proposed and been accepted, the next day was at the day after... He and Mr. Bennett go out together shooting on Mr. Bennett's grounds. And it gives you a picture of Mr. Bennett as much more of a country gentleman rather than a scholar. Well, yeah, it's probably the first time you've heard of him voluntarily going outside. Well, yes. <laughs> yes. yes, but you do think, what did they chat about? Perhaps it was easier, though. Because after all, if they're shooting, there are all sorts of conventional things you say to one another and somebody <laughs> shoots and somebody doesn't yeah. and they tell the gamekeeper to do this and so mm. on. But I also noticed that one of the things that Mrs Bennett had, the first dinner she has when Bingley arrives, is partridges. Mm. They have two partridges and you could only have partridges if you shot them yourself. Oh. All these game birds could not be sold. Mm -hmm. because that would just mean that poachers yeah. could poach and get away with it. Mm. So already Mr Bennett has been shooting. <laughs> or his gamekeeper has. Well, no, I don't think the gamekeepers go shooting. Okay. They keep the game for the gentlemen. Mm -hmm. When you were saying it makes sense for them to come down again after such a big gap, something that always strikes me when I read this is when the two of them arrive and Kitty looks out the window and sees Bingley and sees there's someone else with him and she says... It looks just like that man that used to be with him before. Mr. What's-his-name? That tall, proud man. Yeah. Which I think is just, it's a delightful way of letting you know that Darcy has been so important to Elizabeth and to us, the reader, that he's sort of almost not the centre of the universe, but it's inconceivable that someone would forget his name. And yet, when you think about it, it's been 10 months since Kitty has seen him. Of course, Kitty was more interested in the officers then anyway, but... 
she doesn't think he's anything important. He's just, what was his name again, that tall, proud man? Yes. Well, it, it's as though she notices him as much as if the Lucases had had an elderly visitor. Yeah. And because he doesn't enter her or Lydia's sphere. I just love this sudden realisation that... How not, uncentral he is. Yes, how uncentral he is to most people except well, Elizabeth. I suppose the other point I wanted to make, and I'm not sure how significant it is, and I suppose it really doesn't tell you so much about Elizabeth's feelings for Mrs Bennet as for the state she's in over Darcy when Mrs Bennet is embarrassing them. First of all, Elizabeth feels that Darcy looks more like he used to look in Hertfordshire than he did at Pemberley, and then she thinks, but perhaps he could not in her mother's presence be what he was before her uncle and aunt. It was a painful but not an improbable conjecture. And then later on, after Mrs Bennet says that bit about... About when you've killed your own birds, Mr Bingley, I beg you will come here and shoot as many as you please on Mr Bennet's manor. Yes. So after she said that sort of thing, it says, Elizabeth's misery increased at such unnecessary, such officious attention. At that instant, she felt that years of happiness could not make Jane or herself amends for moments of such painful confusion. She never is as disgusted or as angry with her mother at any other point in the book, I don't think. And it mustn't be so much Mrs Bennet as she's on such tender hooks yeah. with Darcy. Because yeah. I don't think it's actually expressing anger as such with her mother or even necessarily disgust as such. She's just, she's just feeling embarrassment. Yes, and, and that I've had this all my life. And, of course, she's also worried that everything's going to play out the same way it did last year with them being put off by the family and going away again. Yes, yes. Yes, because she's still on tenterhooks, of course, for Jane as well as for herself yeah. at that point, yes. But, of course, another thing that she's embarrassed by and Jane is embarrassed by is Mrs Bennet so obviously regularly trying to clear the room so Jane can be alone with Bingley. But yeah. that pays off in the end. Yes. <laughs> she's cleared the room. Nothing happens the first time, but the second time she does it, and Elizabeth walks in and Bingley has just proposed to Jane. So Mrs. Bennet is heavy-handed and clumsy, but oh, she was right in that case. Off. I mean, sending Jane to get a cold at Netherfield, as though she doesn't know it, in fact, gets not just Bingley, but Mr. Darcy also yes. <laughs> for the two girls. Oh, no, everything she does works. Yeah. It's just it's so awful for them to have mm. to watch it. Yeah. Another thing that strikes me as a little bit odd in this chapter is this unnamed young woman who keeps Elizabeth away from Darcy, who basically when Darcy is coming and Elizabeth is hoping to speak to him, this woman says, we want nothing of the men, do we? And then she speaks briefly and then the woman again grabs her attention. And We don't know the name of this woman. We don't really know everything else. You just get in a fairly general statement that she's seated at another part of the table and that Darcy has to go off and play whist. But this is a very, very specific event and very you, you feel for Elizabeth as you hear the story. Yes, if you want to fit it in. It would have to be somebody like one of Mrs Long's nieces who get mentioned. But, I mean, that just fits with what I think I was saying before about that incident, having a very young woman feel mm. as though even it was mm. something left over from first impressions mm. that she felt she'd done really well there and yeah. didn't want to get rid of. And I guess maybe because, as you were saying way back when we first started talking about it, she creates this sense of a neighbourhood while only naming one or two families. Yes. And maybe at this point she doesn't want this person to be Mariah Lucas or one of the Longs, but she doesn't want to introduce a new name at this point, so she just calls her the young woman or the young lady. Yes. Another thing that kind of struck me a bit as I was reading this section more closely than I normally do is I think we're actually getting more physical descriptions of Longbourn than we've had before. We've known that there's a farm attached to the property, but suddenly in this one, Elizabeth sees Bingley riding across the paddock. Yes. And then when Lady Catherine arrives, she comments that they have quite a small park, although Mrs. Bennet assures her that it's bigger than the, the Lucases. Yes. <laughs> that it's bigger than the Lucases. We know while Lady Catherine's there that they have this sitting room that's in the wrong part of the house for the evening. They have a dining parlour, they have a drawing room. But then also outside, they have a lawn, they have a wilderness, they have different walks, and they have a hermitage. 
Yes. Now, is the Hermitage, like in Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, they just put up the Hermitage as a feature, even yes. though there's no hermit living in the Hermitage? Oh, yes, yes. I oh, know it, it's part of all that capability brown gardening with prospects and, and people were putting things up, and I'm sure it would you know, be just like people putting little gazebos up or even glass houses or mm. things. It's just a fashionable thing yeah. to put. As Tom Stoppard's characters say in Arcadia, surely if you provide a hermitage, I expect you to provide a hermit as well. Yes, <laughs> but... <laughs> I think I might have mentioned this last time, but Mr Collins's letter to Mr Bennett, I think this is the moment where we see Mr Collins in his absolute worst light. Up until now, and even partly in the letter, he's been embarrassing, he's been not very intelligent. You've also pointed out there are some good features about him. But in this letter, and he's talking about Mr Bennett's decision to receive Lydia and Wickham in the house after they've been married, and he says, It was an encouragement of vice, and had I been the rector of Longbourn, I should very strenuously have opposed it. You ought certainly to forgive them as a Christian, but never to admit them in your sight or allow their names to be mentioned in your hearing. And then Mr. Bennett's response is, that is his notion of Christian forgiveness. Of course, Mr. Bennett himself initially thought that, but was talked around by Jane and Elizabeth. Yeah. But again, I think that is where we see the most fundamental thing that is wrong with Mr. Collins, that he has absolutely no, he has no compassion. And that is... Well, I mean, he has no feeling. This is what you're supposed to say. And all I think is about this incredible narrowness and handed down, and he's been reading various sermons and things by other divines, and one of the things you know is you have to be terribly hard on immorality. Mm. And it's the clergyman's job to see there's no immorality in his parish. So he would have been the sort of one that if a girl was pregnant, she was just turned out of the house, that's it, goodbye. Mm -hmm. Whereas a more generous person would worry about what was going to happen to her, find somewhere for her to stay, see if he could find someone to take her on as a servant afterwards. Mm. And what, get the child... Give the child, well, look, give the child to her mother and the mother would bring it up. That was in reasonably kindly done things. That would tend to happen. Mm. Sometimes they'd even pretend the child was, in fact, the youngest of the mother's children rather than her first grandchild. One thing I wanted to raise is John Sutherland, you know, the academic who wrote those series of books about puzzles in 19th century fiction. Yes. One of them, the book was called, and so one of the essays in it was called who betrays Elizabeth Bennet? And he raises the question, what appears to have happened is that someone at Lucas Lodge has written to Charlotte, who has told Mr. Collins, who has told Lady Catherine that Elizabeth and Darcy are likely to get engaged. That's more or less what Mr. Collins says in his letter, and it's also the subtext of what Lady Catherine says. Yes. But as John Sutherland points out, how could that rumour possibly have existed anywhere in Meryton so that the Lucases have heard about it and Mrs. Bennet hasn't heard about it? There is yes. no way. So what John Sutherland theorises is that, in fact, it didn't come from the Lucases, that Charlotte, having to dine every evening with the Reverend Mr. William Collins and the Right Honourable Lady Catherine de Bourgh, would turn a saint's milk of human kindness to vinegar. What we may assume is that an embittered Charlotte is determined to settle accounts with Elizabeth. She will poison Elizabeth's prospects with a preemptive strike that she knows will provide an outburst of the young woman's incorrigible prejudice. It is a stroke of well-conceived malice. Now, I have a couple of issues with what he says there, but let's first of all talk about whether the rumour would have originated with Charlotte and then maybe talk about why she did it. Oh, well, I'm convinced it originates with Charlotte because, after all, she was getting a bit, well, not suspicious, but she was sort of starting to speculate well, has Mr. Darcy coming here? Yes. Is he, in, he? She even says somewhere, doesn't mm. she? He must be in love with you. Yeah. Well, she's spotted that, I think, even before Hunsford. I think she's picked up on it at the Netherfield Ball. She is probably the only person who picks up on it. Oh, except for Miss Bingley. Miss Bingley's oh, picked up on yes. it. <laughs> okay. She and Miss Bingley. But all of that happened in March. It is now September. Yes. Yes, Charlotte may or may not know about the visit to Pemberley. So other than this thing that Bingley and Jane have got engaged and possibly someone has told Charlotte that, oh, and Mr Darcy, that tall, proud man, was here as well, I'm not convinced that there's enough information for Charlotte to pick up on that. I mean, she's good, but she's not that good. 
my picture I've had is that it's sort of interesting information and she just lets slip at some point to Mr Collins. Oh, well, perhaps this could help Elizabeth mm. with Mr Darcy. Yeah. Um, and, and then Mr Collins. Everything has to be so absolutely black and white. You know, it's true or it's not true. Drops it to Lady Catherine. Mm. That does make sense, but it also ties in with something else we picked up on in an earlier chapter, which, well, Mr Collins' last letter to Mr Bennet, where he says that his dear Charlotte has told him about Lydia's poor upbringing. Yeah. And yeah, my thought then was, that's a bit mean of Charlotte. And it's almost as if Charlotte is, while she's not sort of joining Team Collins, Team Lady Catherine, it is like she's maybe shifting her allegiances just a little bit, which again is why she might say something to Mr Collins that otherwise she wouldn't. I think it's perfectly reasonable that when they hear that about Lydia, that um, Charlotte should say, oh, well, you know, she was very badly brought up. Just say it without thinking. Once upon a time, maybe at the start of the marriage, I don't think Charlotte would have said that, but maybe by then, which again, they were married in January. Yeah, they've been married quite a few months by now. So maybe she is, as I said, just, yeah, she's with them all the time. Maybe she's not embittered. Maybe she is just gradually shifting Speaks her mind. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean... I, I get rid of the idea of her being mean and trying to... Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't accept that. Yeah, nor do, nor do I, because something else it says when they're at Hunsford, and she's noticed that both Mr Darcy and Colonel Fitzwilliam are interested in Elizabeth. And, yeah, she she's backing Mr Darcy because he has more influence in the church than his... That's right, yes. So, yeah, that, that was my other thing. I think even if she did start it, and I'm not convinced she had enough information... I can't see she would have been doing it to try and stop Elizabeth's chances. One other thing John Sutherland has in a footnote that someone else pointed out to him is that at this time, Charlotte Lucas is actually pregnant. So maybe she's not happy being pregnant and she blames Elizabeth for the pregnancy because of... That's nonsense. I mean, she's thrilled to bits to be pregnant. Yeah. She likes looking after her chickens (laughs) and plants. Mm. Why on earth wouldn't she be absolutely thrilled to be having a baby? Yeah. When I first read this chapter in Sutherland's book, I, for the reasons I said, I didn't think Charlotte really had enough information to make that call, and also I didn't believe the bitterness thing. And I developed a whole completely different theory, uh-huh. which was that where was it most apparent that Darcy was interested in Elizabeth? It was when they were at Pemberley. Who at Pemberley might be having any sort of communication with Lady Catherine? Georgiana. So maybe it was something Georgiana innocently let slip in what is probably a duty but not particularly engaging correspondence with her aunt. Yes. And I, th- I thought this was a wonderful theory. But it would, it, I mean, it would, except for it, contrary it, evidence. Yes, exactly. During the close reading that we've done of these chapters, I realised that, yeah, what Mr Collins says in his letter is that it comes from the Lucases. Well, Charlotte so, would have had a letter. Oh, my goodness. Look, yes. listen to this. Yeah. So, oh, I wonder, yeah. you know, I wonder if Mr Darcy, yes. after all, may yeah. mean something. Yeah, so Mr Collins isn't necessarily lying when he says this information comes from the Lucases. He just misinterprets... Yeah. What Charlotte's sort of speculation yeah. is, is just Charlotte, not yeah. American speculation. Yeah, so when Mr Collins says that it comes from the Lucases, what he really means is it comes from Charlotte. Yes. And... So then comes from him to Lady Catherine, can't possibly come from Lady Catherine to him, which is a pity because I really liked that as a solution to that problem. Well, I thought that would be lovely, yes, yes. We haven't even mentioned the interview with Lady Catherine. One thing, I think it it was when I was reading the Claire Tomlin biography, one of the things she says is anyone who's tried to produce this scene realises how absolutely fantastically well it behaves on stage. Mm. I wonder, did they have predecessors? It reminds you so much of Lady Bracknell. Yes. But I just wonder, were there, in that late 18th century comedy of Sheridan and people like that, did they also have any Lady Catherines? Was she Mm. already a stock figure? Or was she almost a Jane Austen invention? Mm. No, I'd say they're almost certainly. I think there's even people like that in uh, restoration comedy. Mm. One of the lines I love from Lady Catherine that I was almost going to make my favourite sentence for this episode because she says, My character has ever been celebrated for its sincerity and frankness, and in a cause of such moment as this, I shall certainly not depart from it. Oh, that's beautiful, yes. That's practically Oscar Wilde. 
Yeah. You, you could see that line in The Importance of Being Earnest, either by Lady Bracknell or possibly by Gwendolyn, who I think has something quite similar. Well, she does in the dialogue with Cicely. Yeah, it's lines like that. Though I'm not sure that line has actually been included in any of the versions I've seen, but lines like that, the whole thing is just so full of this battle of dialogues and it works so well and it's so pacey. Yes. Yes. So, did you have a favourite sentence from these chapters? Yes, the one I've chosen comes from Mr Collins. It's in his letter to Mr Bennett, and he's talking about Darcy. This young gentleman is blessed in a peculiar way with everything the heart of mortal can most desire. Splendid property, noble kindred, and extensive patronage. And I particularly like extensive patronage, <laughs> because that is so, so like Mr Collins. So I found a lot of really lovely sentences in this. I've always been fond of the one I read out at the start of this episode, so I won't revisit that one. But Which is that about Kitty? No, the one about Mr Wickham being so perfectly satisfied with this oh, conversation. Yes. yes. Oh, yes. that's a beautiful yeah. one. But there's a couple I've noticed in this closer read-through that had passed me by before. So the one I've chosen, it's about Bingley. After the proposal, it says, Bingley from this time was, of course, a daily visitor at Longbourn, coming frequently before breakfast and always remaining till after supper, unless when some barbarous neighbour, who could not be enough detested, had given him an invitation to dinner which he thought himself obliged to accept. I love the way that that's an eraser comment, but it's drawn in the language Bingley would have used and Bingley's emotion. And I was actually watching something on YouTube just the other day, a little piece by John Mullen, and I think he says this is officially called free indirect narration. Oh, right. Which isn't a term Jane Austen would have used, but I gather it's something that she, if not invented, she was certainly one of the first people to use, this thing of the narrator drawing into the emotions of the person being described and using their language but having it as a narrator comment, not as a, a dialogue. The exaggeration, the barbarous neighbour who could not be enough to test it. I just found it so funny. Yes, yes. The character we've decided to talk about for this episode is Jane. Yes. But we really don't actually know all that much about Jane because she's, she's so very nice. We know from Mrs Bennet... Yes. continually from Mrs Bennet that Jane is the most beautiful of the sisters. Yes. We know from Elizabeth, and again we know this continually from Elizabeth, that Jane is good and Jane always says nice things about people and indeed that she doesn't just say them as Jane herself says, she believes them. The other thing that strikes me is the extent to which what we know about Jane is from Elizabeth telling Jane how wonderful she is. Mm. Um, well, perhaps Jane Austen, but also Elizabeth tell her that she's well-educated and that she's full of good sense. But all we ever see is her believing all this stuff about disinterested parties mm. and so on and refusing to believe what ought to be absolutely plain to her. Yes. She not just doesn't want to see the worst in people, in the face of all evidence, she continues to believe the best in people. So she believes right up until it's impossible that um, Lydia and Wickham are going to get married. Yes. And she also, and this is a piece that I think we both remember because it was picked up on by Sheila K. Smith and G.B. Stern. After Bingley has proposed, she says, I must go instantly to my mother, she cried. I would not on any account trifle with her affectionate solicitude. And only Jane could describe Mrs. Bennet's reaction as affectionate solicitude. Yeah, it's, a, it's a glory dance. <laughs> I suppose I'm quite interested in the use of the word candour. It's the word that Elizabeth uses about Jane over and over again. She talks about her mild and steady candour, always pleaded for allowances. And well, that's Jane Austen on her. And then Elizabeth says, with your good sense to be so honestly blind to the follies and nonsense of others, affectation of candour is common enough. One meets with it everywhere. But to be candid without ostentation or design, take the good of everybody's character and make it still better and say nothing of the bad belongs to you alone. And this is the sort of way Elizabeth keeps on telling Jane. She's praising her, praising her. And it's not as if Jane is somebody with low self-esteem mm. who needs to be boosted. Mm. I mean, she's just a nice, modest girl. She's not totally surprised that Bingley likes her. 
She doesn't need any convincing that he's interested in her. She's prepared to take herself to London so he can make contact. Now she does all these things with somebody with perfectly good self-esteem mm. and that Elizabeth is boosting, boosting, <laughs> boosting her mm. and you wonder why. Mm. Another thing that strikes me about that sentence is Elizabeth talks about Jane's good sense. But honestly, as a reader, I find it very, very hard to, again, I think it was probably in one of the Talking About Jane Austen books where one of them says, Jane is indeed a darling, but she has not inherited her father's brains. No, <laughs> no well, she definitely. Mm. And yet, obviously, she has been able to talk as an equal about the sort of things that Elizabeth and Charlotte Lucas chat mm. about. So she's obviously absorbed her education. She's not pushing it forward, but mm. she can talk about these sensible things. But she won't let anybody say anyone she knows is horrible. Yes. <laughs> oh, no, and I suppose the other thing you could say about Jane is that we, we do get convinced she's upset about Bingley. Yes. But again, only through Elizabeth's eyes and Mrs Gardner's eyes. Mm. But the nice thing about it is her dignity, I suppose, mm. through all that. Yeah. I mean, she, she doesn't go weepy, she doesn't want to be pitied. And she, she just wants to be left alone. And then I think, again, it's sort of amusing the way she takes it when she meets Bingley again and she says, I can do it, I don't have to, I'm not thinking about him, I'm just wanting to be friends with him as though nothing else had ever happened. You know, that is, I've never really thought about this before, that is exactly how Eleanor responds in Sense and Sensibility. But in Sense and Sensibility, we're all the way seeing Eleanor's feelings. In this, we're seeing what it looks like from the outside. Yes, yes, I suppose so, yes. Mm. One other thing I've wondered about Jane, and it's in these chapters in particular, well, specifically one instance, is her sense of humour and the fact that when Mr Bennett says his piece about all your servants will cheat you and you'll, you'll get on so well and Jane doesn't treat it as a joke and I kind of wonder, does she have much of a sense of humour like Elizabeth. But then I thought, no, later on when Elizabeth is telling her about Darcy and she says, dear sister, be, be serious. So I think she's laughing with her then. Yes, yeah. Though Elizabeth, again, does tease her quite a bit. Yeah, but mostly she responds to teasing absolutely straight. Yes, yes, she does. She very rarely seems to engage in two-way banter. Yes. Still, there they are, and they're very fond of one another mm. and pretend to believe what Elizabeth says. Yeah. And actually, maybe we should finish with when Elizabeth is thinking about, after the engagement, thinking about Jane of Bingley, she says, Elizabeth really believed all his expectations of felicity to be rationally founded because they had for basis the excellent understanding and super excellent disposition of Jane. Yes. <laughs> historical part for this session I've decided to focus on the sort of question is what does Jane Austen mean or what do her characters mean when they talk about somebody as being a gentleman. We know there's that very classic bit in the middle of her argument with Lady Catherine where she says in marrying your nephew I should not consider myself as quitting that sphere. He is a gentleman, I am a gentleman's daughter. So far, we are equal. And that seems to me it's just taking a, a straightforward view of what being a gentleman was, mm -hmm. that it was your background, it was the place you were brought up from. There's no doubt Mr Bennett is on apparently sort of lower ranks, perhaps, but definitely he's a gentleman. Definitely mm -hmm. Mr Darcy is not a nobleman. He's a gentleman. He's two generations removed from being a nobleman. Well, yes, he is, but then we don't know who the Bennets are descended from. True. But anyway, so that's a perfectly straightforward and that sort of fits in with a definition of a gentleman as somebody who comes from a gentlemanly background. And Lady Catherine then also brings up the point where she says, who are your uncles and aunts? Do not imagine me ignorant of their condition, mm. which means they are simply local attorneys. If a person is a gentleman or a lady, if they come from a certain background, and that's very clearly defined, who belongs to it, who doesn't. Mm. I always remember being told by this woman who came from quite an upper crust 
pastoralist background. Instead of saying Tinker Tailor Soldier Sailor, when she went through Cherry Stones, she said Land, Law, Medicine, Church, Army, Navy, Left in the Lurch. <laughs> this was told me in the 1950s, mm. but it was still the case those were what counted in Jane Austen's time. Mm. If you were landed gentry, if you lived off your land, or if you belonged to the right profession. If you were a barrister, you were fine. If you were a solicitor, you weren't. If you were a physician, you could just scrape in as a gentleman. If you were a surgeon or an apothecary, you didn't make it. Mm. And over the next hundred odd years, of course, more and more professions came in and it sort of ended up with being if you'd had a university education or even if you'd been to a private school. Mm. But there were other ways of defining a gentleman, not by who your family was, but what you were like. At the beginning of the century, if you behaved like a gentleman, you could be seen as a gentleman. And when I started running through the phrase gentleman, what I found is that Jane Austen uses the phrase gentleman-like. And just about every time she introduces a new set of men, she uses the phrase gentleman-like. Mr Bingley was good-looking and gentleman-like. He had a pleasant countenance and easy, unaffected manners. Mm. And then when we get Mr Wickham comes in, but the attention of every lady was soon caught by a young man whom they had never seen before of most gentlemanlike appearance. The officers of the Blankshire were in general a very creditable gentlemanlike set. Mm. Mr Gardner was a sensible gentlemanlike man. And I've got five or six more. She only uses gentleman really when she's just talking, almost saying a person. But gentlemanlike, she brings in every time as an introduction to it. Well, having found Jane Austen use that phrase gentlemanlike so frequently, I started to wonder what in fact she was meaning by it, because it comes through as fairly superficial. This is something you just see people. So if you stamped and roared and carried on at people, even if you were a duke, that was sort of ungentlemanlike behaviour. If, on the other hand, you made one of Mr Bennett's put-downs, then you were behaving like a gentleman mm -hmm. if you managed to express yourself in this unembarrassing and rather funny form. And, of course, Mr Gardner, who is not by birth a gentleman, is still described as gentlemanlike. And also he's got a gentlemanly education. Yep. And that was, of course, what the Darcy's gave to Mr Wickham. They gave him a gentlemanly education. But anyway, looking for sort of a more generalised description in trying to work out just what gentlemanlike meant to Jane Austen, I found what I felt was a fairly good description in a fairly late book by Anthony Trollope where he deals with this question very specifically of, of the difference between birth and being gentlemanlike, mm -hmm. and then something that keeps being added later, which is a sort of moral quality. Trump describes somebody who is gentlemanlike, but has none of this gentry background. Mm -hmm. And he says, it was admitted on all sides that Ferdinand Lopez was a gentleman. He was not well born, he worked in the city, and still this most precious rank was succeeded to him the rank of gentleman. Mm. It was known of him that he had been at a good English private school. In a sense, he was what is called a gentleman. He knew how to speak, how to look, how to use a knife and fork, how to dress himself and how to walk. But he had not the faintest notion of the feelings of a gentleman. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that is sort of underlying Jane Austen and as the next century went on, all these good, strong moral qualities were given to gentlemen. But I think in the sense that Jane Austen uses it, particularly in her sense gentlemanlike, she is pretty well describing Ferdinand Lopez. Mm -hmm. After all, when Wickham turns up in Meryton, he seems to be exactly what that was. Yeah. But it mattered a lot to people right through the 19th into the 20th century for somebody to say you're no gentleman to another one 
could provoke a fight or possibly when they were still dueling a duel. Mm. And of course, you know, it's hidden there, even in that lovely line from The Importance of Being Earnest, where Jack says to Algernon, it's a very ungentlemanly thing to read a private cigarette case, <laughs> which fits into the sort of those, the moral behaviour as well as the good manners. Mm-hmm. And I just think that that's just worth noticing in Jane Austen, particularly with the word gentleman and her use of this word gentleman-like. With the pop culture section today, I'm mostly going to be talking about the adaptations because, as I think I said last time, in most of the modernisations, there's never been any question about Darcy's involvement because he and Elizabeth have often worked together to help Lydia out. So, oh, right. so a lot of the stuff with Lady Catherine and then with Mr Collins' letter and that it is less of an issue. That part that I felt was sort of interesting here, that when you know it's going to come right, she still manages to keep, to keep yeah. you really on tenterhooks mm. and make it fascinating and you really enjoy it. Yes, mm. yeah. The adaptations all dramatise the Lady Catherine scene slightly differently, but it's an absolute delight in pretty much all of them. The one that is perhaps most of a departure from the book is the 1940 version. There's quite a lot of slapstick elements added to that, and also there's some extra dialogue, such as Lady Catherine saying, as one of the trustees, she could strip Darcy of his fortune, and what do you think of that? But nonetheless, you still have this great verbal battle between her and Elizabeth. And then Lady Catherine leaves and who's waiting in the carriage but Darcy? And she says to him, you were right. Yes, she deserves you and go on in and propose. And (laughs) so again, she's suddenly turned into this nice person. Apparently there's a couple of possible reasons for this. One of them is that Edna May Oliver, who played Lady Catherine, apparently often played nicer characters than that. And possibly she didn't want to play her the way she's written. Then that's really surprising when you think how many leading English actresses, the ones who became dames, they all had their Lady Bracknell. Ah, but she wasn't English, she was American. Oh, right. Um, And another thing I did read was a suggestion that because this was done during the war and it wanted to create a positive picture of Great Britain because of America entering the war on the side of Great Britain, it has a bit of a subtext of breaking down the class system and so Lady Catherine in the end turns around and supports this meeting of people from slightly different ends of the gentry. But yeah, it's very, very unexpected if you know the book. (laughs) It's also part of the very compressed ending I talked about last time where everything is bunched together. So Lydia and Wickham have barely arrived when suddenly Lady Catherine walks into the room and then Darcy goes in and then Bingley turns up to propose to Jane. It's all smooshed together at the end. But still, I mean, it pretty much is in the book even. Yes, but this is all happening in one morning. Yes. (laughs) So it's only taking a matter of minutes. Yes, okay. In the 1980 and the 1995 version, you have something, again, fairly similar to the book. Although one thing that made me laugh in the 1995 version is when Lady Catherine arrives, she's got Anne de Berg with her as well. She goes in and leaves Anne in the carriage, just waiting. That's um, weird and unnecessary. Yeah. Oh, except she does, after all, sit outside Charlotte's house in her carriage. Yes, but she's been driven 50 miles to yeah. Longbourn. <laughs> no dialogue, she just sits in the carriage waiting. You have to wonder why Lady Catherine brought her. Yes. So that, that was a, a change I found odd and a bit pointless. But I said the 1940 is the biggest change, but in a different direction, 2005 is also a huge change from the book in a, again, bizarre direction, which is that Lady Catherine, who is the excellent Judy Dench, turns up in the middle of the night, (laughs) uh, barges into Longbourn, has her argument with Elizabeth just in the room. And again, Judy Dench is wonderful. Judy Dench has played Lady Bracknell certainly on screen and probably on stage as well. But it's just totally bizarre that she's turned up in the middle of the night to do this. You Also, while they're having their argument, the whole rest of the family are listening outside the door, which is a bit tacky. Yes. 
What, all wearing nightcaps and oh, nightgowns? Yes. Nightcaps, I'm not sure, but all wearing nightgowns. Yes. Um, and not even wraps around them, even though it's September. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The only one of the modernisations that has an equivalent of the Lady Catherine scheme is Lizzie Bennet Diaries, because it's the only one where Elizabeth doesn't know what Darcy has done. So in this one, it's Lydia who tells Elizabeth that Darcy did it, though this is a much more chastened Lydia who's trying to pull her life back together, but she knows people who knows people, and she's been able to find out that Darcy was the one who got the website taken down, and she tells Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And then Elizabeth gets a surprise visit, not from Ms. de Berg, but from Caroline Bingley. (laughs) Caroline Bingley plays the Lady Catherine role in this. So... It's nice they've given Caroline an extra scene, and it's quite a good scene, but I I feel it doesn't work as well as Lady Catherine. But nonetheless, that that's but, but what she's come. She's turned up to tell Darcy he mustn't marry Elizabeth. No, she's turned up to tell Elizabeth that she's ruining Darcy's life. Right. Just some other random things that struck me about different ways the various adaptations treat them. Oh, I might as well stick with Lizzie Bennet Diaries for the moment, which is. Jane and Bing. Jane gets a job offer and decides to move to New York. Yes. Bing turns up and he kind of wants them to get back together and Jane basically says, no, I'm moving on with my life. And then it turns out that Bing, who had been a medical student, has actually dropped out of medical school and he's been doing a bit of charity work because he realised that he was doing all of this for his family, not for himself. And in the end... He also goes to New York, but Jane sets down the rules that you can come to New York, not with me, we're going to have separate apartments, but we'll see how it goes. And I just really like that fact that she didn't just immediately forgive him and agree to marry him, she has a lot more independence than in the book, which I thought was good, because she was badly treated by him. But in the book, she does forgive him. Oh, look, she more or less forgives him in this as well, but she's not going to be subservient in any way. You know how we were talking earlier about um, Elizabeth's misery and, and embarrassment with her family? In both 1980 and 1995, you really get that sense. You get that sense of her just wanting the ground to open up and swallow her. It's all so oh, bad. Well, that's lovely to put yes. that in, yes. In 1940, 1980 and 1995, Mrs. Bennet is always, as she is in the book when Bingley comes to call, she's over-the-top and officious and embarrassing. Interestingly, in the 2005, Brenda Blethyn's portrayal of Mrs. Bennet in this scene is quite different, and it harks back to that stuff I was saying a while back, that you get a lot more sympathy towards some of these characters. They're drawn in slightly less broad strokes sometimes. You're made to try and empathise with them, and I'm not quite sure what they were going for in this scene, but when Bingley and Darcy first arrive, She has a lot of the same dialogue about um, Miss Lucas is married and my own daughter is also married, but they didn't didn't put it well in the paper. But she sounds sort of almost forlorn as she's saying it, almost as though she's trying to make conversation but not quite sure what will interest them. It's interesting. It's not like the book. After all, she perhaps is feeling a bit nothing now that Lydia has gone. Mm. But what you were putting it that way as though she's also feeling bit on the defensive. Possibly, yes. It's hard to tell, but she does, um, as I said, she sounds a little bit forlorn. Now, Bingley in this version, I said before, he's quite, he seems quite thick, and he really does come across as thick in this. He and Darcy have come into the room, he was unable to make any conversation, they leave, and then you have this scene, mostly in long shot, of him saying to Darcy, I was going to say this, and I should have said that, and (laughs) what am I going to do, what should I say, and they even have a practice run of him talking to Darcy, pretending to be Miss Bennet, and he just comes across as amiable, but oh, really not intelligent at all. But the scene when he finally does propose to Jane... Obviously, it's not Jane Austen's dialogue because we don't get that scene in Jane Austen. But it's an example of dialogue that I feel most of the other versions... No, that's not true. The two BBC versions, when they wrote additional dialogue, you could tell it wasn't Jane Austen if you know the book, but it still felt compatible. Yes. A lot of the extra dialogue in this version just feels very... It really clashes with the Jane Austen dialogue. So I really didn't like his proposal. He says something like, I've been an unmitigated ass, which is not something 
I think you'd find in Jane Austen. Well, I think it's a bit late. Yeah. I think that's a Victorian mm. phrase. Yeah. And quite late Victorian. <laughs> yes. And then he proposes and Jane sort of starry-eyed says, yes, a thousand times yes, which is, I guess, nice and romantic, but again, doesn't feel very Jane Austen-y to me. No. It's worth commenting with Jane that in most of the film adaptations, even the modernisation versions, Jane is not more beautiful than Elizabeth. <laughs> They're either much of a muchness or Elizabeth is more attractive. Yes. Oh, oh just one other thing that um, struck me in the 1980 version is yeah. that little scene that we talked about with you know, the unnamed young woman saying to Elizabeth, the men shan't part us. Yes. They take that woman in the 1980 version and they really, they build up that scene quite a lot. So you really see her stopping... Elizabeth talking to Darcy. Yeah. But then right at the end when she learns who Darcy is, she herself goes off and pursues him. So, oh, yeah. No, well, that yeah. spoils it. But. Yeah. The 2005 version also, like the 1940 version, compresses time a bit because they're both films and therefore they both have a much more limited time well, they can work with than the miniseries. Well, so, yes, a much shorter time in which to show the stuff. Yes. yes. So it does compress it quite a lot. So essentially Bingley has come in, then he's left and had this conversation with Darcy. Then he just goes straight back in again and has the proposal with Jane. Darcy hasn't returned with him at that point. And then it's that night that Lady Catherine arrives and then the next day I'm going to be talking about next time the final proposal to Elizabeth, which is another place in which the 2005 version departs radically from Jane Austen. Oh, right. You've been listening to Reading Jane Austen with me, Harriet. And me, Ellen. In our next episode, we're going to be finishing up Pride and Prejudice with chapters 58 to 61. The structure of this podcast was inspired by Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, and the summarised in a sentence concept was adapted from E.L. Konigsberg's book Silent to the Bone. Our music is Creative Commons performances of pieces Jane Austen might have listened to. You can find us on Facebook at Reading Jane Austen and our website readingjaneaustin.com. You can email us at readingjaneaustin.com or rate and review us in your podcast app. We hope you'll join us next time. <laughs>